guys and welcome to episode number 80 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for another Q&A. And before we get stuck into all of the questions, we wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to share them with your family and friends and on your Instagram stories as well. And if you are interested in any of our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, and you can also find that link in any of our Instagram bios as well. So that brings us to the first question of the day, which is, do you do blood work with any of your clients? Man, so this is actually a good question. And a few weeks ago, I was actually asked it on the Level Up podcast with Sherelle and Danny. And I feel like I didn't actually answer it that well. So I'm, I'm glad we got asked again because, you know, the topic of doing blood work with, you know, your clientele is quite common in the health and fitness industry. And I think it certainly is becoming a lot more common. So from my personal coaching experience, you know, I certainly have had clients before who have inquired with me. And during our initial consultation call, when I'm getting a bunch of medical history, lifestyle history, exercise, nutrition, all of that stuff, right? They'll actually provide me with their most recent blood test results, or at least from the last time that they went to their GP. And a lot of time people have informed me of, you know, their most recent blood test result, either it came back all clear, you know, and they were fit as a fiddle, you know, everything was perfectly fine. Or there certainly have been incidences where someone's gotten their blood test results back and they are deficient in something. So perhaps it shows that they're anemic and they have low iron stores, right? Perhaps they have a deficiency in vitamin D, anything, right? And in my personal coaching experience, it's usually been the clients who follow more vegan or vegetarian style diets that actually get these blood tests done because you know they are at a greater risk, unfortunately, of some nutrient deficiencies because they're not consuming animal products. So from that, when a client has an initial call with me, right, and we go through their blood work if they've gotten that done, and let's say they say like, okay, it came back that I have low iron status or I'm low in vitamin D, right? We would do a detailed dietary recall and then we would come up with some nutritional strategies for how they can increase the quantity of that certain nutrient in their diet to get them back up to the RDI so that they're no longer deficient. But that's more so for a nutrient like something like iron, right? Or if someone was following a vegan diet, trying to get some more B12 into them through supplementation, or you know, if someone isn't consuming enough omega-3 fatty acids in their diet, then we need to increase that either through food or perhaps at the last protocol supplementation. But if someone's like low vitamin D status, right? if it is appropriate for them to get enough sunlight exposure during the day and that would suit in with their lifestyle, that would be the number one, trying to actually get vitamin D from the sun. But if they live in a very cold climate or they're always indoors or they're always wearing clothes, right, then we would need to consider supplementation with vitamin D plus calcium. And again, once you take those approaches, right, then you would need to follow up later with blood work around maybe three months to six months later to find out if they are back up to that RDI. But Jack, I think you and I are very fortunate so far in our coaching careers that we do work with a very healthy population. 
And so far, working with my clients, I actually haven't noticed any signs or symptoms among the people that I've worked with that they are incredibly sick, they're very malnourished, perhaps they are very, very deficient in something. So I've never actually had to take that step of, okay, I want you to go to your GP and I want you to get some blood work done because I think something might be wrong here. So we're very fortunate that we've never been in that situation before, but Absolutely. I'm sure if we are in the future, you know, and one of our clients are really sick, then you do recommend, you know, it's outside your scope of practice, right? As dietitians, you can recommend that people go and get blood work done and you can request pathology. But, you know, people sometimes need to take that into their own hands as well. And if you're sick, you need to go see a doctor. Yeah, definitely. I think if you are sick, then go see a doctor. And the recommendations are actually very infrequent. Like, Go see a doctor if you're sick, but if you're like under the age of 35 and you're healthy, then it is only like one to three years you need to see a doctor. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a large like time frame, isn't it? Like once every three years, that's a that's not very often at all to just go get a checkup and make sure that everything's all fine and dandy for sure. But I guess just a few more things to take into consideration are obviously if you are a coach who is working with a client who is taking performance enhancing drugs, then it is certainly very, very important that you are monitoring their blood work on a frequent basis. Or if you are an individual taking performance enhancing drugs yourself, it's very, very important that you are, you know, keeping track of all those things as well, because health is the top priority and you should be working alongside health professionals who can make sure that you are staying as healthy as possible given the circumstances. And uh, something else to take into consideration too is that if you are going to get blood work done, the timing of when you get your blood work is super duper important, especially if you are regularly exercising because we know that exercise can acutely skew blood work. So like if you were to go and do a two hour leg workout, right? And then you were going to get your bloods taken right after that, that would majorly skew the results because, you know, you're going to have elevated levels of creatinine, you know, your electrolytes are going to be imbalanced. You might have elevated levels of certain liver enzymes. So in that case, it might lead to something like a false positive result, right? So it might show that you have elevated levels of liver enzymes. And if you just looked at that, you're like, oh God, I've got a hepatic condition, something's wrong with my liver. It's like, no, 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 you just train legs, it's all good, it's gonna subside in the next day or two. So if you are getting blood work one, it's super important that you are fasted, you haven't eaten anything, you can drink water beforehand, but you just haven't eaten anything, I'd say for at least 12 hours, because if you have a meal right before, obviously those nutrients are getting absorbed into your bloodstream, and again, that can skew your results. Also, it's really important that you do get a blood test pretty far away from a large bout of exercise. So my best recommendation would be to try to give it maybe at least two days after you've exercised. So let's say that you have a blood test on a Thursday morning when you're, when you're fasted. I would recommend taking a rest day on the Wednesday and then the, your previous training session should have been perhaps on the Tuesday morning. So you're giving yourself at least two days there to fully recover so that you can get the most accurate test results possible. I think that's something really important to take into consideration. But uh, yeah, I think that's you know all we have to say about blood work. Obviously we're advocates for it, you know, and if you feel sick or you feel like something's wrong, right? 
go to your doctor and get checked up. They are the number one people on this planet, right? To actually take that into their own hands. That's what they are qualified to do. And then if you get those blood test results back and you find out that you are deficient in something, would highly recommend, you know, speaking to a dietitian on how you can increase that nutrient through good quality food in your diet, or perhaps consider supplementation if that's viable as well. Yeah, I've been in the same situation myself where clients have come to me with blood work and I, I haven't requested them myself, but the they might have gone to the GP and they're seeing the GP for something and they'll get blood results from him. And sometimes they're not like diet related. So, and sometimes they are, for example, like, I don't know, one, one client might've been deficient in so-and-so and then we can work on his diet in order to rectify that. Mm-hmm. But... A lot of the time we have to remember that, especially in the hospital when people have acute illnesses, that there will be a lot of false positives and false negatives and that bloods will be changing all the time. So important to take those things into consideration as well. Yeah. So there's these things called, you know, positive reactants and negative reactants. So in that acute phase where you are very sick, right, and you are starting to become inflamed, your temperature is going up, your white blood cell count is going up certain things in your blood, you know, will be elevated. So those are positive reactants. So an example of that would be your ferritin, serum ferritin, which is an indicator of iron status, right? That's actually going to be elevated. But something else like the blood protein albumin, that's actually going to be a negative reactant. So that's actually going to go down in the acute phase. So if you were really sick, right, and you went and got a blood test result, it might actually show that hey, your iron status is actually fine. You know, your ferritin, your serum ferritin is high. However, you know, your blood plasma protein albumin, that's actually quite low, right? But because you're in that very acute phase of illness, you need to monitor those things because again, they could be false positives. So yeah, that's just something else to take into consideration. But generally that is in a acute setting where someone is very sick in the hospital. So doesn't necessarily apply and it's not applicable to, um, you know, the healthy population that we usually work with. But yeah, that's a little rundown on blood work. But moving on to this next question. So it says, how would you track your steps if you don't have a fitness tracker? So I'm assuming this means something like, how would you track your steps if you're not wearing a Fitbit or you're not carrying your phone around with you? So I guess we have to put this into perspective as well. Like, if someone isn't tracking their steps, then I would ask, and they want to track their steps, then I would ask why not just even buy like a $5 pedometer, which mm-hmm. you can put in your pocket or something or put on your waistband. Yeah. And so like that would be my first question because like it's very achievable to just buy. Because like before we had phones and Fitbits, mm-hmm. we had pedometers. And I remember, I remember, I think I used to get them in like Christmas crackers, like pedometers. Yeah, or <laughs> even like cereal boxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's that could be one easy solution, very cheap. Something interesting about that though is that uh, one of my clients, you know, she's currently doing her prac as a physiotherapist, and they have very strict rules on that how they're actually not allowed to wear anything 
on their wrists. So they're not allowed to wear something like a Fitbit. Also, they're not allowed to have their phone on them. And I suggested that she wear a pedometer, but she also said she couldn't wear that either. Even though if it was me, I might like, you know, hide it in my sock or something mm. like that where no one can see it, but obviously following these rules. So sometimes so I guess- So she couldn't have anything in her pocket. Yeah, there's just these, ca- there's just strange cases where people just aren't allowed these certain things on them, right? Mm. So. Obviously, that's an extreme circumstance, which again, wouldn't really apply to most, but some crazy things happen and you're not allowed to track your steps. So mm. <laughs> what would you do? Well, yeah, the second factor is not being able to track your steps isn't the end of the world. It doesn't mm. really change that much. Like mm. a few of my clients don't track their steps. It's just not really in line with their goals. Like yeah. it's, it doesn't really matter in like some people have massive variances in their steps and that's where it might be more useful to allocate more food on days where like 2000 versus 15,000. But if your steps are relatively even throughout the week, then I don't think it's even necessary to track your steps. Like I don't track my steps. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember guys is that you are walking, you know, that you are moving your body and like, you know, tracking steps, you know, and wearing these Fitbits and stuff like it's still quite new. We have to remember that like a lot of us have probably gone through many years, perhaps even decades of our life of just moving our body and not necessarily being aware of exactly how many steps we walked. You know, did we walk 10,000 or did we walk 10,070 kind of thing? So like we have to remember that the most important thing is that you're still moving your body and you're still walking. And I've even been caught in this situation before. Like sometimes I'll take off my Fitbit to charge it and then I'll forget that it's charging. And then I might go walking around the house or I might go on a walk or leave. And I'm like, I look down at my wrist and I'm like, no, I forgot my watch at home. And instantly, like sometimes you think you're like, God, I don't know how many steps I've walked, you know, like um, it won't track it. But then you have to remember, like, you're still doing the steps. You're still walking. So that's the main thing, whether they're actually being counted on a device or not, you're still moving your body. And that's, that's the main thing. So for most people, you know, you can estimate how many steps you walk on average, you know, for, for an average person, you know, walking at a moderate pace, generally 10 minutes of walking equates to around 1000 steps. So a lot of times when I'm doing, you know, a dietetics consult with someone or talking about their lifestyle and their exercise habits, right? If they don't track their steps, then I usually ask them like, how, how, how long would you estimate you're generally walking during the day? And they might say, oh, maybe half an hour, maybe 60 minutes. And then you can usually just times 10 minute lots by uh, 1000. And that gives you just an estimate of how active someone probably is. So that's another thing Mm. too. Yeah, I think that tracking steps is most useful for people who uh, don't do enough steps. Mm -hmm. So that's when it will really just allow them to say, okay, I've got a 10,000 step target and I need to try and hit that as opposed to like now I, I tracked my steps for probably like a month, but then I literally have the same routine now every day. And I know that I'm, I'm doing enough. So I, mm-hmm. there's no point tracking it if it's just going to be like a, a thousand step variance. Yeah. Or it could go the other way too. You know, sometimes if you have been super duper active during a day, right? Like yourself, you might, if you walk 20,000 steps compared to 10,000 steps, then you're like, okay, my goal is to either maintain or gain some weight. 
I should probably eat a little bit more food. So that's also indicative too, because it's just that energy output side of the equation as well. So I'm, to me, like the more data, the better, you know, like the more things that you can track, you know, the more you can measure, the more you can manage. I think it's really nice to be well informed of how much activity you're doing and keeping things consistent and just, you know, monitoring different things. So I think tracking your steps is an awesome thing. You don't have to track it down to the step, but just being aware of your daily activity levels, I think is important. Yeah, it is. It's, as you said, it's another variable to to be able to manage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of similar to like, remember it's similar to like tracking your food, right? Like imagine you are eating pretty similar things every single day, but God, we've all been there where we wake up in the morning, go to weigh our oats and oh God, the scale battery, it's, it's dead. We don't have any batteries for the scale. How am I going to weigh my oats? Right. Uh, you have to remember at the, like the end of the day, we've got the backup scale. we We do. We have, we have like one or two backup scales now, but we've learned from our experiences. We went to, um, we, we've been places where we've forgotten our scales, batteries have broken, but at the end of the day, remember the most important thing is that you're still eating food, right? And if you're eating generally similar things every day, or you're used to tracking your food, right? You should have the knowledge. You should have that skill to estimate portion sizes pretty darn well. So don't just call it as a write-off, right? Don't just say like, oh man, the scale's broken. I'm just going to have a massive stack of pancakes. You know, that's like five times as calorie dense as my usual oats because hell, you know, if I can't measure it, then it doesn't count. Right. Or don't be like, don't choose not to eat or something extreme. Like, like remember, remember what's the most important at the end of the day that you're moving your body and you're actually eating food. So obviously tracking all of these variables is awesome. Right. And 99% of the time we do have access to them, but if you don't, it's not the end of the world. So moving on to this next question, it says, is it healthy to avoid processed foods? So this is one of those questions we hear quite a lot and it's quite a normal question to ask. But when it's put into perspective what a processed food actually is, it kind of changes the answer quite a lot. So Mm -hmm. pretty much every food we eat undergoes some degree of processing and anything that happens after harvesting is basically processing. So let's say frozen vegetables, your frozen vegetables have to be chopped, they have to be washed, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Then they have to be frozen. Any like tinned vegetables as well, they have to be tinned, they have to be chopped, all that sort of stuff. So you have minimally processed and then you have ultra processed or highly Mm -hmm. processed foods. So minimally processed would be something like your apple that you buy in the supermarket and highly processed would be a Twinkie something. Yeah, that's a good example. So yeah, pretty much harvesting, you know, that just means picking a fruit or a vegetable from the farm, right? And anything after that is a process. Every single food goes through a process. So I guess that's busting a myth and saying pretty much everything that you eat is processed. But like you said, it's mm. either... Unless mitten- you have a backyard garden yeah exactly unless you oh yeah like a darn our failed carrots and pumpkins that sam just loves to eat but you know pretty much unless you're growing your own veggies and you go out there and you just get a carrot out of the ground and take a bite like yeah and but like even i would argue even taking an egg and into your kitchen and cracking it in the pan isn't that processing right? That's still going through a process. I think that's way too far, yeah. <laughs> Unless you swallowed the egg whole or, you know, you 
you don't even bother washing off your carrot, you just take a bite, then yeah, maybe you're eating unprocessed food. But for the most part, guys, every single thing is processed. So that kind of busts that myth. But yeah, it can be minimally processed. Should we address what people are trying to say though when they say processed foods? Yeah, so I think that when people say processed foods, one, it's not minimally processed. It's gone through a large degree of processing. And during that process, right, it's generally been stripped of its nutrients, I would say. So for example, let's take a potato. A potato can go through varying degrees of processing, right? You could get a potato from a farm. It could go onto a truck. It could go to a supermarket and then you could buy it, take it home, wash it, slice it up into wedges, put it into the oven and then have potato wedges, right? Still processed, but you're still getting a hell of a lot of the nutrients from that potato. But or a, a potato- quickly, like even, even the process of transportation and storage, like that all, we've talked about this before, like fresh versus frozen vegetables, like even that'll influence the nutritional quality of mm. it. So if it's been like sitting on the shelf, if it was transported in like an unrefrigerated truck, or if it, yeah, for like, I don't know, Tierra learned that our asparagus comes from Mexico, which I is going to be different than oh my in gosh. Australia. Yeah, we were at Woolworths on the weekend and they didn't have any asparagus. And I was like, hey, like, you know, do you guys have any asparagus out back? And he's like, oh no, you know, do the whole COVID thing. We usually only get it twice a week and it's coming in from Mexico. So the guy at Woolworths, right? I don't know how credible this source is, all right? Don't get me wrong. But apparently Australia only is able to grow its own asparagus for about two months of the year. And the other 10 months of the year, he said that it's generally coming from Mexico and Spain. So a lot of fruits and vegetables are imported, you know? And that's the thing, you, you get a banana, right? That's picked from another country across the planet and it is just like bright green, right? But once it's picked, it gets onto a ship, it comes over to Australia, it sits on a shelf, then it's able to turn yellow. So there's all these different things, but yeah, every single food is processed. But I'd say if something is maxly processed, going back to our potato, right? Let's say that potato is picked from the farm, goes to a different factory, and it's turned into an actual potato chip. So, you know, it's it's peeled and it's washed and, you know, there's different things added to it, right? It's pretty much stripped of its nutrients. So that would be that would be maxly processed mm. or something something else you know you could take you could take a whole grain right like you could take some brown rice and then you could take the hull off so it turns into white rice and then you could process that so that it becomes pretty rice much rice krispies yeah stripped of its nutrients lcm bars mhm yeah so but yeah. um yeah it's interesting because just because it's more processed doesn't always mean it's bad either for mm. example like inulin which is a fiber that's added to some types of yogurt which boosts the fiber content of yogurt that's technically adding another process or a couple extra steps onto it but it's it's providing part of providing you with additional fiber even things like your vitamin and mineral supplements like for some people they are important mm -hmm. like a lot of people don't require them but those are ultra processed to, yeah. in order to produce them. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, processed foods might be the best option for someone depending on their circumstance. So let's say that you had an athlete, right? Who had very high carbohydrate requirements during the day and they were training multiple times per day and they needed to resynthesize glycogen and they needed to recover between training sessions. 
then yeah, maybe having something like a Gatorade, which would be highly processed, that's the most viable option for them. Or let's say that someone's in the hospital, right? And they're malnourished and they have no appetite at all. And the top priority is to get protein and calories into this person, but they have no appetite. You know, they don't want to sit down to a big steak and a bunch of vegetables and a big pile of mashed potatoes, right? So you might want to give this someone like banana chips, right? Because banana chips might be a really awesome idea because, you know, they've taken a banana and yes, these banana chips are very maximally processed, but they've dehydrated it so that for the total volume of food, you are getting a lot of carbohydrates in the form of the sugar from the banana. They'd usually coat it in coconut sugar. They'd probably also coat it in something like coconut oil. So it tastes even better. They might put a little bit of salt on there. So these are very highly palatable, calorie dense food, right? So someone might want to eat some banana chips, right? To get some calories into them. And also maybe instead of a steak, they want to eat a highly processed protein bar to get some protein into them. And obviously this isn't a, like from a nutritional standpoint, actually getting like micronutrients into you and trying to thrive, right? This wouldn't be the most viable option, but sometimes when people are in the hospital and they're very sick and it really does come down to in order for this person to survive, we need to get calories and protein into them. You'd sometimes just have to go to these uh, different levels, right? And use different strategies to actually make that happen. So There's always a different circumstance depending on the person. That's another example though, Jack, like protein bars would be very, very processed, wouldn't they? (laughs) Mm, Very processed. Yeah. Just look at the ingredient list. Yeah, absolutely. But hopefully that just busts the myth, you know, Mm. that all foods are processed. Yeah, they definitely are. And in saying that there's nothing wrong with choosing to have I don't know, a chocolate bar, which is more processed purely because you want it. Mm -hmm. And all we're trying to say is that Maybe you need to look at the perspective of processing in a different light in terms of most things are processed. There's just less processed and more processed. And we would still advocate having a less processed diet. So Mm -hmm. things that are naturally less processed, like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, from a nutritional standpoint, really trying to get those micronutrients into you and, uh, yeah, certainly going to help you thrive, but it's really going for that balance. You know, people always talk about the 80-20 rule, you know, so trying eight for 80% of the time, for the most part, you know, choosing minimally processed foods that are very nutrient rich, but then 20% of your diet, you know, you can choose more discretionary items and things like that. So yeah, but uh, just remember, processing, processed foods, it's an umbrella term. So if anyone from now on tells you like, you shouldn't eat that, it's processed, you can point your finger at them and be like, well, that's processed too. And I don't care if it's an apple. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a bit of Even a Even some backlash. apples have um, a coating of wax on them. <laughs> that's true. I've seen these videos where people will take an, an apple and they'll pour hot water on it and it will like melt the wax off. Mm. How nuts is that? My mom used to use a knife and peel the wax off apples. The wax, and it would keep the skin on? Yeah. Oh my gosh, how thick is this wax? Pretty thick. <laughs> Yo, man, like, what, is that for, I, I need to look that up, but is that like for preservation or is that purely just to make it look more shiny? Mm. I would assume it's more to do with the oxidation yeah. of the apple. Yeah, how interesting. Wow, well, yeah, wash your apples, man, or in some cases, peel your apples. <laughs> All right, so we'll move on to this next one. 
It says, what is your opinion on the specific carbohydrate diet in relation to ulcerative colitis? So this is actually the first time we've heard about this, the specific carbohydrate diet. So we actually had to look this one up. Yeah, we had to look this one up and ask my dad as well, who yeah. we saw on Sunday. But And just disclaimer, Jack's dad is a gastroenterologist. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is, it's an interesting approach. And first of all, like we, especially since we didn't hear anything about this diet at university and we did touch on ulcerative colitis and the treatment for that, the dietetic treatment, and the fact that we didn't learn about the specific carbohydrate diet, I know automatically we're a little bit skeptical. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, is this evidence-based <laughs> or is this just incredibly restrictive? Yeah. So I think Tierra will kind of read off like what the specific carbohydrate diet actually um, promotes and eliminates. Yeah. So essentially because of ulcerative colitis, right? So ulcerative colitis is a type of irritable bowel disease where you do form ulcers in your colon, mm. you know, and uh, it's pretty Pretty much that. Yeah. It's, it's pretty awful. Right. And there's mixed evidence to show whether or not it's actually caused by diet or can the diet actually be a potential, not cure, but you know, can it help to, uh, subside, you know, some of the negative effects of ulcerative colitis in combination with actual drug treatment too. But the specific carbohydrate diet, just looking at it from a bird's eye view, it's incredibly restrictive, right? Like, and it, it's very different to the FODMAPS diet as well. Yeah. So FODMAPS diet, right? That's a process that you would go through accompanied by a dietitian, right? And that's pretty much where you start to eliminate foods with certain FODMAPS in them. So that's like fermentable, oligo, dye, mono, and polyols. So Those are different types of carbohydrates that are found in a lot of different types of foods. But essentially what you do is you start to eliminate those in the FODMAPS diet, but then you start to reintroduce foods in order to see, okay, what triggers your bowel and what doesn't trigger your bowel, you know? So what's causing issues and what can you tolerate? So you're not supposed to follow a low FODMAP diet forever. It's only an acute thing. But with a specific carbohydrate diet, it seems as though it's just completely restrictive. Like from what I've read, you're basically supposed to just exclude a lot of these sort of foods from your diet and uh, hope for the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is incredibly restrictive. So pretty much it, it excludes all simple sugars. So it excludes all lactose, all sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, fructose, molasses, you know, all of these different, any pretty much type of sugar that has been processed down to the monosaccharide or, and then it's pretty much excludes all canned vegetables. So apparently there's something wrong with eating a vegetable from a can. Don't get me started on that. Um, It excludes all grains. So anything from corn, wheat, wheat germ, barley, oats, rye, rice, buckwheat, soy, spelt, right? Like what are you supposed to eat? It also excludes a bunch of legumes. So things like chickpeas and bean sprouts, soybeans, fava beans, garbanzo beans. So like you're not allowed to eat chickpeas, but you are allowed to eat red kidney beans. Like personally, I don't see the logic there. You're not allowed to have starchy vegetables. So how dare you eat a potato or a yam or a parsnip, you know, anything, anything, any canned or a processed meat. And, you know, we did just talk about processed foods. So essentially all meats are going to be processed to some degree, but I, 
I'm assuming here they're talking about highly processed meat, so something like salami compared to like a fish fillet or a steak. Um, you have to exclude all dairy products, you know? You can't have a lot of vegetable oils like canola oil, you know, margarine. Apparently you even have to exclude baking powder and balsamic vinegar. And definitely you can't have any discretionary items like anything like chocolate or cake or pastries. So man, this just sounds sad. So restrictive. We have to remember though that it is a serious medical condition though. Yeah, ulcerative colitis is, but this this diet's not serious. Like this is... I know, (laughs) but I think... I think we have to kind of understand what they're trying to achieve with this diet. And obviously, I don't think that this is a suitable diet for most people, even people with ulcerative colitis. But from what I can gather from the diet itself, what they're trying to achieve is basically remove anything that will irritate your colon with having ulcerative colitis. So Mm -hmm. that's why they've eliminated things like chocolate or they've eliminated a lot of those grain types because they might ferment, which might cause problems and they're also a lot of processed foods like especially corn like high fructose corn syrup or other corn products which are highly processed yeah but at the same time like like they're eliminating almost every single food from your diet Mm. you're all fructose you can't eat any fruit right you can't eat any type of grain right you can't eat a bunch of legumes yeah i know but um this person's gonna run into a massive nutrient deficiency on top of their ulcerative colitis i think purely what this diet is trying to achieve is just to eliminate symptoms Mm. and then the patient is going to feel a better in the short term because they won't have any symptoms like they won't have bloody diarrhea anymore they'll have nothing in their colon they can't eat yo (laughs) and but i i just don't understand what the stage is from here Mm -hmm. because like we might have to either do some more research or i don't know like i would i would be very surprised if they stayed on this diet forever like it might be might be something similar to the elimination diet where they hop on it and then hopefully their symptoms go away or they reduce and then they slowly start to reintroduce things. Like I would say this might be that sort of diet where you hop on this for like, let's say, I don't know, a couple of weeks where their symptoms reduce. Mm-hmm. And after that, they then reintroduce things to like build back up the microbiome, which again, this is shaky ground. Like I'm not 100% sure, but that might, might also help with the treatment of the UC. Yeah, definitely. So we'll definitely have to do more reading into it, but, but I yeah, would, for, from yeah. an evidence base and what we were taught as dietitians, you know, and working in the hospital, working in different private practices and stuff like that, the most evidence is certainly for the FODMAP diet and working mm. closely beside a dietitian in that sense, because that that is restrictive, but it's a very short term. And you also, you reintroduce these foods. And it's not just a blanket approach of what someone deems as good and bad foods and you just cut all that out because like man excluding all of these foods one you're excluding so many wonderful essential nutrients from your diet that you can only get from these certain types of foods right like man excluding all grains all legumes all fruit from your diet plenty of vegetables that you're just gonna run into issues and it's not sustainable it's not gonna have you help you have a healthy relationship with food it's gonna be hard to bounce back from this also um, when we when we were researching it there there was no evidence-based sort of pages displaying the breakdown of what it was like mm -hmm. it was webmd and like these blogs but it wasn't actually anything like the dietitians association of australia or any journals or anything like that so that kind of is a red flag that it's more of like a might be not as evidence-based yeah absolutely so 
Would not recommend, but we would recommend speaking to a dietitian, a gastroenterologist, getting referrals from these people if you are having issues with your bowels or you just want some clarification before you hop on a highly restrictive diet and actually run into even more issues down the track than you're potentially experiencing right now. So yeah, um, yeah, tread carefully. (laughs) All right, so that was our final question. And before we wrap things up, Uh, We'll end on the question that we always finish on, and that is something that we learned this week. So, Tierra, what did you learn? So, this is actually from one of the most recent mass articles that was released in the July issue, and uh, it has to do with caffeine intake. And they were pretty much testing, you know, what's the lowest dose you can go down to to still experience positive ergogenic effects, you know, and improve your exercise performance. And pretty much what they've clarified is that you know, general recommendations are between three to six milligrams of caffeine at least one hour prior to exercise to help improve performance. But when it comes to just strength performance, you know, and not actual endurance performance, they've clarified that you can probably go as low as two milligrams per kilogram of body weight of caffeine. So if you're like a 60 kilogram female, having something like 120 milligrams of caffeine would actually be enough caffeine in order to receive ergogenic effects during your training sessions if you're doing resistance training. So that's good news, you know? So if you are a pretty light body weight, you can probably get by with drinking something like a mother, right? I think a mother has around 160 milligrams of caffeine and you'll probably get maximum- Is it a mother or a mother? Monster. A mother or a monster or a, a 3D energy drink from Christian Guzman, um, whatever has caffeine in it. It usually has around that 160 milligram mark. Some have more, some have less. I think like- Or a V. Yeah, Vs, but I think Rockstar. Vs and uh, Red Bulls, they have closer to 80 milligrams. So yeah, but they're a smaller can too. But anyway, you can probably go closer to that two milligrams per kilogram of body weight for strength. But if you're an endurance athlete, you definitely do want to be going between that three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And you made the point, right? That endurance, it's just tougher, right? You just (laughs) like, you just have to last for longer and caffeine's probably going to help with that. So But there's no reason, like that's that's the minimum dose, two milligrams per kilogram. Obviously, you can still consume more than that, and a hell of a lot of us do, you mm. know? So you can still have your pre-workout with 300 milligrams. I wonder if milligrams. anyone's ever tried intra-workout caffeine for endurance athletes. Mm. Uh, what, yeah, probably. But usually you have to consume it at least one hour prior yeah, I, to I exercise. Yeah, I know that would be like the confounding factor, mm-hmm. but... I mean, everyone still gets like a boost as soon as they drink it, whether it's psychological or not. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe like ultra endurance. So like if you were training for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, Also, it could potentially be the placebo effect too, you know, but that'd be interesting to look into as well. Actually, I think that when I was doing advanced ex-phys at uni, they did a study with cyclists. So they either, because these cyclists were training for a long period of time. So what they did was they did the traditional, they gave them caffeine um, 60 minutes prior to exercise. And then the other group, they gave them caffeine 60 minutes prior to the peak of their training. Um, 
because caffeine will peak in the bloodstream around one hour after you consume it. So they gave it to them actually during their training, right? And then they expected it to peak when they were the most tired during their um, mm. cycling session. They didn't find any additional results. I mm. think it was either the that, same yeah. performance or the people who actually consumed it prior actually might have even done better. That might make sense with as well. Save a better start, maybe. But. Yeah, a better start, or maybe just you know we think about parasympathetic and um, sympathetic nervous system, right? If you're exercising and you're consuming something, maybe it interferes with the digestion and absorption of that food. But I don't know. That's mixed because you can certainly absorb glucose and different forms of carbohydrates intra workout, and that can positively benefit endurance performance. But yeah, anyway. If you're lifting weights, you can probably get by with two milligrams per kilo. But Jack, what did you learn this week? So I think this is the first time I've said this, but I learned about the specific carbohydrate diet. Mm. First time I said this is in learning from a question, which Mm. I think is really good. And I think that's one of the reasons why we love doing these podcasts, because it keeps us on our toes and keeps us learning information, learning new information and also reciting information that we've already learned. So, which is really nice. And yeah, I didn't, we both didn't know about a specific carbohydrate diet. So we had to research that, learn about it. So we could give a definitive answer on the episode. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing, guys. Remember, we certainly do not know everything. We're just scraping the surface most of the time. And I love being asked questions that I don't know the answer to because, yeah, it does force me to go out and learn something new, which is, I love learning, man. I wake up in the morning to learn, so nerd (laughs) all right but yeah i guess that's the end of episode 80 awesome thanks for listening guys and if you enjoyed it please remember to share it on your instagram stories tag myself tag tiara tag tbd and we'll see you next week bye